Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, novelist Kathy Unsworth on her latest book, That Old Black Magic. Kathy Unsworth is the author of five novels, Without the Moon, Weirdo, The Not Knowing, The Singer and Bad Penny Blues, all published by Serpent's Tale. Without the Moon was long-listed for the 2016 Gordon Byrne Prize and was the Times Crime Book of the Month. Weirdo was shortlisted for the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Prize. And Cathy's new novel, her sixth novel, is That Old Black Magic. Cathy, welcome to Little Atoms. Well, thank you for having me now. How would you describe That Old Black Magic? Maybe I should say it's my 666 novel. It's, <laughs> it's a tale about two really disturbing cases that, that happened during World War Two that continue to sort of haunt and provoke to this day. Um, one of them is the trial of the medium Helen Duncan, who's the last woman to be uh, prosecuted successfully under the 17th century witchcraft laws, which happened in the middle of 1944, which you would think they had better things to do. But Helen had been working as a medium in Portsmouth, and um, one of her seances, she apparently brought through some dead sailors from the other side who had been sunk on the HMS Barham, which had the sinking of which had been placed under a news blackout, so how did she know, etc., etc. Uh, there was another, one of the many strange characters that appear in this book who really, who really did exist was a, the head of the Scottish MI5, Brigadier Firebrace. You'd seen her. They don't call them names like that anymore, no, do there's, they? There's a few names in this book <laughs> that are real people that if you made them up, exactly. we wouldn't believe them. Exactly. And Brigadier Firebrace, who I imagine to have an enormous walrus moustache, was one of them. And he'd, he'd encountered Helen before, another seance in Edinburgh, where she apparently saw the sinking of the HMS Hood. So by the time she'd done this twice, he was convinced that she did have strange powers and um, I don't know if that that it never came up at her trial if that was the reason but you know obviously talking about secrets like this in the British naval dockyard the home of the Royal Navy was, wasn't going to win out any friends in high places. No, loose lips literally do sink ships. <laughs> exactly so whether they thought she was a spy working for the Germans whatever she had to be silenced. And the other case happened the year before, and it's actually, um, I, I didn't realise this at the time of writing, but this year is the 75th anniversary of this happening. These four little boys found the skull of a woman in what could loosely be described as a tree, but it's more like the stuff of nightmares, in a, a stately home on the sort of black country uh, Worcestershire borders, Hagley Hall, even the name of which seems to have come straight out of Dennis Wheatley. And nobody ever found out who this woman was, so we'll, t- we'll obviously talk a bit more about that. But these two facts 
because she was found on this witch elm, as the locals called it, and because elm trees are associated with witchcraft and because rumours soon started that this was an occult-related murder, I just thought, well, there's two cases of witchcraft during the war. I wanted to try and find a way of combining the two. And so, yeah. And when did you first come across the story of the of the body in the witch elm? It was my former publisher, Mike Dash, who I used to work for Bizarre, and uh, he was the publisher of both Bizarre and Forty and Times. Mike's got a really, you know, he writes some really great books about forgotten histories himself. Mm-hmm. That That's his main passion, and he's done books on the gangs of New York and Tulip Mania and various, really, the first family of the mafia. He said to me, if you're going to write, because my last book was set in the 40s, and that if you're going to write about the 40s, you must do the Hagley Woods mystery. He'd been obsessed with it for years, with good reason. It's an amazing story. And once he said that, it just, yeah, everything clicked into place. And like, people are still obsessed with it. And that you, you talk in the book about there's an appearance after the body is found of, of some graffiti that appears. Yeah, this is why it's so mysterious, because... Nobody claimed this body, and the the woman had very distinctive teeth, and they put pictures of her teeth in all the medical journals, descriptions of her clothing. Nobody came forward to say they knew anything about her, and yet, about six months after she was discovered, this graffiti started appearing all over the Midlands, and first of all, very near Hales Owen and Hagley itself, then in Birmingham in the city centre. All of it appeared to be written by the same person. It was all chalked in letters three feet high saying, who put Bella in the witch helm? And That still happens yes, to this day. I went, we went up to visit it um, with a local friend, Suzanne Knipe, who lives up there, and she was able to show us the exact right places to go to. And there was on, there's an obelisk on the top of the hill, Witchbury Hill, where it's written. It's one of these estates, I should say. It's, it was designed by the Earl of Cobham, who owned it at the time, was friends with uh, Hubert Walpole. He's got the Strawberry Hill house in Twickenham, and he was an expert on sort of the brought back the romantic Gothic. And it was those days when they all aristocrats went on the grand tour and then they came back and tried to make their estates look like little bits of Italy or, or Greece with ruins everywhere. So but this marvellously atmospheric setting, it has all these, like, Greek temples and obelisks and ruined castles scattered across the landscape, and the landscape's all dips and hollows and woods. It's it's like something out of a fairy tale, it really is. And on the obelisk is somebody spray-painted who put Bella in the witch house. In the woods where the, the elm tree was, there's, it's hanging with homemade cardboard signs saying who put Bella in the witch house, and it's, you know, all around that area. It's People obviously still enjoy persisting with the um, the story of it. So what you've done in this novel is posit a a theory as to what might have happened. Yeah. But even more interestingly than that, there are various theories. And, you know, people say truth is stranger than fiction. And it really is. There's various sort of ideas. And so what you've done here in this book is you've mixed... So there's... And I want to st- I want to go through some of the characters, and we'll start off with the main protagonist, who I guess is the perhaps the most fictional one. Um, but there are some fictional characters, there are some real characters from history, mm. there are some real characters from history who are lightly disguised as fictional characters as well. Yeah, tell me about that idea of sort of mixing those three. Well, it comes from really loving the books of James Elroy and Jay Carnot, who do those, tell mm-hmm. these secret histories by some of the names they keep, some they don't. 
my kind of rule about this is if I'm ascribing thoughts and, and emotions to a person, I change their name or sort of obfuscate their name, give them a name very similar. Um, actually, I don't think there's anybody, apart from the boys, there's some of the boys who found this skeleton in the wood are still alive, but there's not many people who are still alive who are um, in my book. But um, yes, in order to try and bring these hidden parts of the past alive and because the true facts of it are all much more bizarre than anything I could possibly make up. And some of these characters, you'd think I was mad. And some of them, I have toned them down, actually, to make them slightly more believable because they were vastly more eccentric than I've said they were in the book. Yeah, disappointingly, <laughs> there's not a talking mongoose in the book. Sadly, <laughs> Harry Price isn't there, but his talking mongoose isn't shadowing him. <laughs> and there's also not a menagerie. The chief is based on Maxwell Knight, the spymaster, and he... I've given him his bulldog that he had, but he also had marmosets, lemurs, you name it. He had it in his flat in Dolphin Square. So let's talk first of all about Ross Spooner, who yes. is your he, sort of main protagonist. Who is he and where does he come from? Well, he is a made-up person, although he is inspired by somebody I know who has got many of his qualities of um, patience and having a massive brain full of strange esoteric facts. He was further inspired by, I read a book called Between Silk and Cyanide by um, uh, Leo Marx, who went on after the war to become involved in the film business. And he worked for SOE during the war. He was their code breaker and he was the son of a bookshop owner. And when he was a little boy, he worked out his dad had written codes in the back of the books. And he worked out they were taken from a a paragraph in Treasure Island, which was his favourite book. And he just thought, when I grow up, I want to be a spy and make codes. And he did do that. And uh, so I, I thought that was an amazing background to have, so I gave it to Spooner. And Spooner himself is kind of on his own voyage of discovery throughout the book. He's At the beginning, he's quite an anonymous clerk, using his brain power to sort of infiltrate all these strange meetings of people in the late 30s that did really happen when there was basically his boss, the chief, Maxwell Knight. He was infiltrating all these... He, People that were, um, how shall I say this, um, associations of people who had Nazi sympathies and a lot of whom had strange occult interests and indeed one one such group had their own little mini Stonehenge in a sort of spinal tap fashion that they danced around (laughs) and see stuff like this I didn't put in because I thought, no, that's just too weird, people won't believe me. But, yeah, so he starts off just being an anonymous person that nobody notices. And he gets the special assignment given to him because of a spy. And this was another thing that really did happen. He was caught in the fens with all this kit on him. He'd been given um, an assignment to to meet up with somebody here and blow up some RAF stations. And he they can't find the person he's supposed to be meeting. He says it's his lover, Clara, and she is the Nazi spy working in Birmingham. And so he's initially sent to find, try and find Clara in Birmingham. And she's a singer and she's an actress and she's been working in the music halls and at Birmingham Hippodrome specifically. So he's given this front of being a talent scout. And so he dresses accordingly. And he dresses a bit like he remembers the uh, sort of more esoteric customers in his dad's bookshop, the p- people who would buy the Alistair Crowley books looking and sort of becomes more foppish and... And then this way he, he feels kind of more at home with himself like this, which... Yeah, he's uh, suddenly transformed and suddenly people are nicer to him and... Women yeah, he trust suddenly, him, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> they 
they want to make him a cup of tea and maybe have a look in the tea leaves and see what it says about him when they've finished. I'm Travis Elborough. You're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, yeah, you mentioned the spy. So um, Joseph Jacob. So you mentioned how um, Hella Duncan was the last person to be tried for witchcraft in oh, the UK. Yes. Yeah. This guy, Joseph Jacobs, is the last person to be executed at the Tower of London yes. as well. Uh, he's quite an unfortunate, sorry, sorry character, really. He fell out of a plane over the fence and uh, was captured by, surrounded by farmers and captured, which uh, as somebody who, who has roots in that area, I find that quite amusing. And he was in a bad way. He'd broken his leg on the way down. He was an unlikely spy, shall we say. He had been trained. He'd never been trained how to jump out of an aeroplane. He'd been given wireless training, but not much else. And um, I MI5 didn't seem to find his information worth doing anything with and they just shot him as a, a traitor in a sort of specially convened circumstances and yeah he was taken to this miniature rifle range um, in the Tower of London and dispatched by Scots guards and it is a sad story really but he was found with this map with stations ringed on it with a wireless kit with he obviously was up to no good but he just was in such a pitiful state when they got him it does seem a bit and Clara, who is so it's it's Joseph Jacobs, this spy who basically suggests that he's landed yeah. in the UK to meet. Well, he this... did tell the real Joseph Jacobs did have this picture of this woman sewn on into the inside lining of his suit, and her name was Clara, and she was an actress. And he, she was the person that he told MI5 he was coming over to meet, and that she was his main contact, and she'd been given him, chosen him for this mission. But they couldn't find any trace of her. And when the files were declassified about this, which was only a few years ago, that was when some... Uh, it was in The Independent who made the thing, could she be the woman in the witch helm? Because she had been working in, in Birmingham and she was known to be an actress and singer and and who apparently could do a Midlands accent. And just, you know, as a, a novelist, this is a gift of a story, isn't it? You know, it's just too good, to, you know. So that's I pursued that angle of, of the, the many theories about who Bella could have been. That was a particularly engaging and enthralling one, actually. And, and the one other of the lightly fictionalised characters I wanted to talk about is um, one of Spooner's main sort of antagonists, Devere. Yeah, um, who is potentially part of this spy ring, escapes to Germany and starts broadcasting propaganda messages back. Yeah, and so basically we're talking about William Joyce here, yes. aren't we? And he was recruited by uh, Maxwell Nye. And in Paul Willits's book, and Paul Willits really helped me with my research uh, rendezvous at the Russian tea rooms. He found enough evidence to actually say that Maxwell Nye told William Joyce that he was about to get busted and enabled him to leave the country, which is a, a very strange thing. And, you know, there's so much stuff out there in the weird parallel universe of the net and people saying, William Joyce, why was he killed? He wasn't even English, he was Irish, so how could he be a traitor? Everything was arranged against him. And um, he was, some people still say that he was, it was because he thought he still was working for MI5 all along um, and he wasn't a traitor, but whatever the... You know, he did he did work for the Nazis and he ended up getting shot as well, so or getting hanged actually, I think. He was hanged in the end. But yes, just this idea. But Devere is quite a different character from the actual Lord Haw Haw. 
I based him more on these these toffs that Maxwell Knight was after. Who did there was a lot of them in the in British aristocracy, who agreed with Hitler, and he would have been one of those going to the right club. This horrible guy called Archibald Ramsay, who Knight thought was the would have been the head of the fifth column preparing for the Nazis to come to welcome them with open arms. He's that sort of person, I imagined, rather than the, the actual. So I turned to him, and I don't know why Devere just seems like such a dastardly name. And other people, for instance, Christabel Nicholson, who I notice is someone that nobody's talking about now as it's the, you as know, the, the 100th in the suffragette. anniversary. No, no, we draw a discreet veil over her. Yes, yeah, this is what I mean by you couldn't make it up. She was a suffragette. She turned into a fascist. But she actually got away with being prosecuted because Joseph Kennedy intervened on her behalf. And Joseph Kennedy hated the British so much. You can read that um, in many ways as well. So, yes. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Cathy Unsworth. We're talking about Cathy's latest novel, which is That Old Black Magic. And Cathy, let's talk about some of the real characters that appear in the book. And the first one I want to talk about is, as I said in the first part, one of these people that if this man was fictional, exactly. we wouldn't believe them. Uh, Hannon Swaffer. Yes, Hannon Swaffer. I love Hannon Swaffer. He's a gift from the gods as well. And I found him through Helen Duncan, because when I was researching her, he defended her at her trial, and I'd never heard of him before, and I found that really weird because he's one of these people like Walter Winchell in America who was once the biggest journalist who everyone trusted, everyone loved. And in a through-the-looking-glass world, he was a avowed spiritualist and socialist. I don't think either of those qualities would get you too far on Fleet Street <laughs> these days. But <laughs> he looks like um, William Hartnell's first Doctor Who. Mm. That's kind of what he looks like. And he's an amazing character. He wrote, you know, he knew all these really powerful high-up people. He was trusted by the British people as a man of the people. And he still claimed to be in constant contact with his former employers on the other side of the fair. So, yeah, he had his foot in both worlds. Now, I must admit, the only reason I've heard of him is because Tom Dryberg wrote a biography a of him. Yeah. And, of course, Tom Dryberg, another character that could quite easily have slipped into this novel. Another person you couldn't really make up, and he could have done easily. And, yes, I found both Swaffer and the, the also marvellous Harry Price, because he was Helen's nemesis. And he's also somebody that you just you couldn't make Harry Price up. You know, he founded the National S Society for Psychical Research and he had a laboratory in South Kensington, very close to where the, the Russian tea rooms where all the fascists met were, which was one of the re ways I could connect the story was Harry Price, actually. I thought he, he persecuted Helen, but he also had this um, library of magical books that would have been of interest to the Germans, and he did have German connections. He was supposed to be taking his, his lab over to Bonn before the war, and he'd 
<laughs> there's some amazing if you get a chance to look on the Harry Price official website there's some amazing pictures that you think would come out of a Hammer film of him performing goat based sorcery in the Harz Mountains <laughs> with a particularly fetching goat he reminds me of Black Philip in, in The Witch and you know, just looking exactly how you'd expect we'd want a ghost hunter to look in the middle of a pentagram with a goat. So, Helen Duncan, you've already mentioned sort of what happens to her mm. latterly, but tell us something about who she was. Well, she was from the Highlands, and from when she was little, she seemed to have the gifts of prophecy and to be able to um, communicate with the spirit world. And during the uh, 20s, uh, and 30s, between the wars, spiritualism really reached its peak, as a, I think, as a response to the First World War and the, the amount of slaughter and carnage, uh, unprecedented, really, and it was kind of a logical response to, you know, was all this for nothing? People wanted to contact the dead, and she seemed to have, a, you know, 50 to 100 people would, in all respectable, high-up people in their fields, wanted to... Um, speak on her behalf at her trial, including wing commanders from the RAF. So she did. I do think Helen had some kind of genuine gift, but she also had these showmanship elements to her, which Harry Price recorded his famous seance photos of her, which looks, it does look like she's surrounded in cheesecloth, which is what he said it was. And um, so she's a very ambiguous figure. But why she should be... She was treated very harshly and she never really got over what happened to her. So, and I, and I think it's a thing that people still feel quite emotional about what happened to her to this day as well. But she was... Sorry, to answer your question properly, during this time in the 20s and 30s, she'd been welcomed into the houses of the great and the good. She'd done lots of private seances for rich people and that's when Harry Price started getting a bead on her and wanting to test her out and um, trying to prove that she was a fraud, basically, because he didn't believe in her at all. I like that element of the book, that like clearly there's the, the seances that the Duncans are doing with the cheesecloth and the regurgitation and the sort of puppet shows and things, and, and there were other aspects in the book of the... You know the supernatural, which are stagecraft, mm. basically. But you do keep it vague in that there are visions that people have that are unexplained, exactly. and I think that's a that's a that's a, a really nice aspect of it. Well, I wanted to keep it as open-minded and even-handed as possible, to be honest with you, because um, I always I try to get it that everybody who sees a seance sees something different, and I think that everyone who sees a seance does see something different, and you know, I think that's an actual fact, and. Um, Yes, I, I want. There could be a rational explanation for everything in the book, or there couldn't be, and I like to to keep it that way, basically. Yeah. What are some of the challenges behind sort of like writing? First of all, a novel that is contains real people mm. and is based to a certain extent on real events, but then at the same time, you know, this is a real event that nobody knows what happened. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I mean, it's. I find it just a gift actually um i really enjoy trying to work out the stuff that a conventional non-bio you know a non-fiction book couldn't say i.e what's going on in people's heads what's their motivation for all of this why are they engaged in this and um and just really enjoy getting to spend time with these characters who they're such strong personalities they kind of take over and you become the medium and you're doing but the whole way through this book, I did feel like, gosh, this is a Dennis Wheatley story. And they were the books that I loved when I was a child that I used to nick from my parents' bookshelves, not believing that my 
church-going, God-fearing parents had a book called The Satanist on their bookshelves. I could just half-inch and read at night and hear this would have been at the time when Margaret Thatcher first came to power as well and what the Satanist philosophy was seemed to be quite similar to her. So I don't know. It was it was like... A, and he, Dennis Wheatley, I, his plots are so fantastic. He will keep your eye glued to the page. So for me, it was also trying to make a book that would, you know, you can't put it down. It's a rip-roaring yarn as well as a, a strange slice of our history. And it comes around because Wheatley himself was sort of, you know, yes. friendly with Maxwell Knight well, and was I've, involved in the, you know, secret services and things. I believe it was he who introduced Maxwell Knight to William Joyce at one of his soirees. He was very good at throwing parties and he was very good at, at joining clubs and he had a lot of friends in all different areas. And I talked to his archivist, Charles Beck, who... He's got all his correspondence with people like Rollo Ahmed and Alistair Crowley and Montague Summers. And he said to me that Dennis would not have made anything up. He would try and find out, like a journalist, like he said it's quite similar to what you've done. He would try out and find out as much of the truth as he possibly could to make his books as accurate as possible. So he would, if he needed to know what went on in a black magic ceremony, he'd have Alistair Crowley around for tea and Napoleon Brandy with him. <laughs> So how did you find out? <laughs> it's I don't know. He told me to do it. <laughs> I'm Emma Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, I was going to ask you about research, and obviously yeah. you've talked about the, uh, you know, Witchbury Hill and like Hagley Hall, those places, and. You know, you can visit those places today and they yes. will be very similar to what they were at this time and what they were in the, you know, in the 17th century. But um, you vividly recreate wartime Birmingham as well. Tell mm. me something about how you did that. Well, it's, it's, there's quite a lot of footage online. There's quite a lot. Of, I found the BBC um, Oral Histories website quite moving, actually. And the, in that was the testimony of one man who'd just, who, the only man who'd survived the firebombing of the BSA factory. Um, which was an awful thing. Half the workers didn't leave. Um, and so they did have air raid shelters, but all the people who were on the late shift when it happened, they just they went downstairs into the basement under the machine floor and the bomb sent the whole of that machine floor down on top of them. And the one man survived because two bits of, of machinery formed an arch above his head and kept him safe. But he heard all his friends dying around him. And just the thought of... Half my family come from the Midlands and my granddad himself worked at the Spitfire factory that was also part of that same blitz. And fortunately, he survived it, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But I do feel quite a close connection to the Midlands myself because of the family ties. And, yeah, it's hard to imagine how Birmingham was because it's even been... It was rebuilt again since the war, since the 60s, Birmingham's probably more unrecognisable than any other city in this country in the decades since. But my mother can remember it. She can remember being a small child. Her memories are really vivid because she was a small child in the Blitz. And, yeah, so I think quite a lot of that came down to her and, you know, family photographs, family memories, and as well as the research I did. Just one more thing for me, and then I'll get you to, to read a bit of the book if you would. I just wanted to mention the chapter titles. Oh, yeah. I think I got about two-thirds of the way through the book before I figured out what was going on. Tell me about those. They're all beautiful songs from the 1940s, the golden era of songwriting, and they're all 
the, I like that it's the thing that Martin Scorsese and Kenneth Anger do, the ironic commentary on, on your action through the song that you use. And this is a real golden age. All the songs of that era, it's one of those lovely, delicious ironies, isn't it? All the people that Hitler most wanted to kill were making this amazing music that was uplifting people and keeping them going. And There's so many songs about moonlight. and there's the, My favourite song title in there was There Are Such Things, which is a beautiful Tommy Dorsey song crooned by Frank Sinatra. And it will make your hair stand on end when you listen to it. It's just really beautiful, that music. from, And I've, I've got loads of it um, at home because I just always wanted to try and find an appropriate song title to comment on the action that's going on in each chapter. And there's a wealth of them from that era. It's wonderful. Oh, have you read our readers a little bit? Yes. It was like something from a nightmare itself, that tree. A monster of an elm, so heavily coppiced that its myriad branches produced a spiral, like some vast crown of thorns around a thick-set bowl smothered in ivy. His first sighting of it had been enough to make Terry take a few steps backward. What's that? he asked. That's the scariest tree I've ever seen. Bob, who had also stopped in his tracks, clearly agreed with him. But Danny had seen something different. Look, he proclaimed, pointing a finger to a hollow just visible from the trunk. There's a nest up there. Quick as you like, he'd ferreted his way through the ivy. But as he drew level with the flash of white he'd perceived in the hollow, even Danny's confident smile inverted into a frown. What's that? Unconsciously echoed the words of Terry down below. The tree smelled dank and earthy as it held him in his verdant embrace. In contrast, the white bane gleamed in the rays of the setting sun, stark against the forest green of the ivy. At first he thought it could be an animal's skull, a small collection of which he kept in his piled potting shed. He reached out for it before his brain caught up with the notion that he'd never seen anything that size before. Not even a badger's head was that big, and, with its two hollow eye sockets and protruding teeth, it looked just like... What do you got there, old Dan? Frank's shrill voice keened up from below. Terry and Bob exchanged glances, neither caring to move any further forward. Danny's fingers curled around the object and he pulled it clear of the ivy. As he did so, his stomach tilted. There was still hair and skin stuck to the side of what really was a human skull, and a little white maggot reared up from the tangled mass in a writhing dance of annoyance as Danny interrupted it from his labours. Ugh! With an involuntary shriek, he dropped it, screwing his eyes shut and clinging to the tree as a nauseating tremor of fear passed through him, slicking his palms with cold sweat. A smell of death crept up to reach inside his nostrils. Frank ran forwards to where Danny's bounty had landed on the thick grass below him, then skidded to a halt. Cautiously, he knelt down beside it, prodding it tentatively with a stick as he gradually took in what he was seeing. Bloody hell! was the summation of his findings. Terry and Bob edged towards him, holding their breaths. Frank looked up at Danny. It's real, isn't it? he said. Danny forced his eyes open. Looks like it, he admitted. What's real? Bob was brave enough to venture. It's a skull. Frank's voice, which was on the verge of breaking, veered up a few octaves. A human skull? Still got some air stuck to it and everything? Shut up, our Frank. Looking down at the three faces, eyes round and mouths in perfect O's, Danny pulled himself together. But 
what are you going to do with it? Frank wanted to know. It can't be the right finding it up a tree like that. Shouldn't we tell the police? We can't do that, Danny warned. We're trespassing as it is. If the gamekeeper finds us, he'll shoot us or take us to the earl and have us skinned alive. No, he shook his head. We're going to fit back in the tree, then we're going to get out of here as fast as we bloody well can. Frank's jaws sagged. Put it back? That's right. Danny checked his footholds. You pass it back to me, old Frank, and I'll put it back where I found it. Come on, don't be a baby. Frank cleared his throat. All right, he said, colour spreading across his cheeks. He didn't want to touch the thing, and at first attempted to lift it up with the end of his stick. Don't, Danny shouted. Yeah, I'll break it if you do that. He could feel his heart hammering as he had to try and stay calm, push away the thought that the skull might just have belonged to the last kid to go birds nesting without permission on Earl de Vere's estate. Just pick it up and give it here. Frank reached into his pockets for his hanky. It wouldn't be so bad, perhaps, if he didn't actually touch it. With a cloth wrapped round his fingers, Frank lifted the skull, being careful not to take hold of the part that still had that hideous clump of matted hair attached to it. Terry and Bob merely watched, horror having rendered the pair of them mute. Bob looked away into the trees, back to the path they'd been following, trying to get his mind back to that earlier place. But Terry found himself unable to stop staring at the grotesque object as Danny lifted it from Frank's wobbling grip and put it back into the hollow of the tree. It seemed to Terry afterwards that, as the exchange was made, all the birdsongs stopped and the sun, so bright only moments before, dipped behind the hills, taking all its warmth with it. When Danny dropped back down from the elm, it was suddenly twilight, their way back through the woods darkening fast. The lads followed their leader without a further word, their hearts in their throats, for every snapping twig, every scurrying of an animal beating of birds' wings, was perhaps the sound of a vengeful gamekeeper creeping up on them with both barrels raised. Or worse still, the phantom that inhabited that terrible tree, seeking out those who dared to disturb its remains. So I've been talking to Cathy Unsworth. We've been talking about her latest novel, That Old Black Magic, which is out now from Serpent's Tale. Cathy, thanks so much for coming oh, in and telling me about so it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.